Good to be with you. I'm Al Cresta, and we're joined right now by Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News and a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Matthew's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 50 books, and including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis, the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. Do follow him on Twitter at Matt Bunsen, that's M-A-T-T, and uh, be listening to Register Radio, which airs Saturdays at 4 p.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m. And Matthew, good to have you here again. Thanks. Yeah, very good to be with you, and a blessed Lent to everyone. Yes, that's right. We are off and running. Uh, <laughs> or off and kneeling, maybe. <laughs> yeah, or it's an ashen start, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk. I think the first story I want to go to has to do with the German bishops and yes. their upcoming uh, spring assembly. Uh, February 19th through 22nd in Augsburg. Uh, the big question hanging over the gathering is is whether the bishops are going to take the next step in establishing a synodal council, which is apparently a permanent body of bishops and laity, to govern the Catholic Church in Germany. So this would be the this would be the really the restructuring. Uh, of the juridical authority uh, of the church in Germany. And, in fact, this has been explicitly forbidden. Uh, so t- size this up for me. Are, are, do, are they, is this high noon? <laughs> uh, it's, it's closer maybe to high 11 a.m. Okay. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that um, I think some of the steps that they're looking possibly to take uh, could lead to a genuine crisis, but there are a couple things that still have to, to play out. Uh, the first is this actual meeting uh, that will be held in Augsburg, um, which is uh, significant because it's also the place where the particular devotion to Our Lady Undoer of Knots uh, first became uh, very, very prominent. <laughs> And it's it's where Pope Francis actually developed uh, a great fondness for Our Lady Undoer of Knots. So I think, uh, and I say this in all seriousness, that I think we need to be praying to uh, for her help uh, because this is a definite knot uh, that needs to be untied. Yes, it is. The, the bishops who are are gathering have before them uh, an option. There are really two: either they can approve this synodal, the statutes of a synodal committee to create this permanent synodal council, or uh, they can punt it down the road, or uh, they can actually defeat this. Now, it's a question of whether or not they'd have the votes. Significantly, when they do take this vote, my understanding is that uh, it will be not a public one. Now, in the past, when they've had the option as bishops to vote privately without the the actual names being attached to specific votes, they did, in fact, vote down a couple of documents in the past that would have been a real disaster, even a bigger disaster than we're seeing with the Sonata way. Mm. But uh, in in this case, they they have that right to vote privately. My worry is that uh, there will be pressure from the ZDK or the Central Committee of German Catholics to make that vote somehow public. Uh, in which case everything's up for grabs. So now, this particular group... Right, this is a potentially major uh, vote. Yeah. The Central Committee of German Catholics, who are they? This is a group of uh, 
what I say without uh, hesitation is a very radical group of German Catholics, uh, lay people. And the name itself tells you a lot. Uh, the Central Committee for German Catholics <laughs> that was yeah. has been around. It's been gathering for a number of years, uh, bringing together disparate groups and, and individuals who want wholesale changes uh, to the church in Germany. That, and what I mean by wholesale changes, uh, basically they were the architects of the, the pillars of the Synodal Way, uh, four major ones, uh, the authority in the life of the church, uh, ordination of women to the priesthood, the diaconate, of course, but also the priesthood, a revisiting of the question of clerical celibacy, and then a wholesale unraveling of the Church's teachings on human sexuality, in particular the Church's entire approach uh, to questions of homosexuality and, and the whole transgender ideology. Ostensibly, it was created, and the whole synodal way was launched in response to uh, the German church had to figure out a way to overcome the problems created by the clergy sexual abuse crisis. That just then opened the door. It was the pretext for everything that followed. Now, the rationale of that argument was effectively destroyed uh, earlier this year, just in the last month, uh, with the issuing of a report on sex abuse among the mainline Protestant churches of Germany, and what we're seeing is the numbers are just staggering. Of, uh, you can read this on Reuters, that over 2,000 people were abused in the German Protestant church. They yeah. suffered sexual violence. So the idea that somehow this was unique to the Catholic Church, and therefore the Catholic Church must abandon her teachings and, in, and essentially embrace a German Protestant theological and ecclesiological structure, it makes no sense anymore in light of this report. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, so w what we can expect then, at the very least, from this uh, conference coming up, or this gathering, this assembly coming up on the 19th and the days following that, yeah. will we be getting a referendum of sorts of the Vatican's current approach to Germany? Will we expect to hear from the Vatican at all? Yeah, so I think uh, you've hit on something that's very important, and that is uh, that they are gathering, they're going to be discussing uh, what to do uh, with this synodal council. Now, we have to go back to immediately after the conclusion of the Synod on Synodality, when Frankly, uh, Bishop Georg Batesing, who's the head of the German Episcopal Conference and, and really one of the architects of the Synodal Way as successor uh, to Cardinal Reinhard Marx of uh, Munich and Freising, declared that they felt fully vindicated by the Synod on Synodality, and, and for that reason they felt comfortable pushing ahead, which is why the Synodal Committee uh drafting these statutes met right after the Synod on Synodality in, in November, on November 10th or so. A majority of the German bishops took part in that and then approved the statutes of the Synodal Committee that's laying the groundwork then for this council. Now, the, the question becomes, uh, are they now, given everything that's followed, willing to endorse this committee? And I think that's going to be the, the major question here in Augsburg. Okay. Okay. Now, to, to your point about what does this mean as a referendum on the Vatican's approach, 
We have seen Pope Francis continuing to talk about this, uh, issuing responses and letters and other things. And we also had Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, the prefect for the Dicastery of the Doctrine of Faith, whom you and I, I think, have spent a lot of time yeah. over the last two months. He himself said that he plans to go to Germany to discuss all of this with the German bishops and his role as prefect. But there was also a curious uh, side story that uh, the, the German bishops were supposed to be going to Rome for meetings, and we have no way of knowing if those ever happened. Uh, so everything is up in the air, and the ball is now very clearly in the court of the organizers of the Synodal Way, the Central Committee of German Catholics, and above all, uh, the German bishops themselves who hold in their power these 27 diocesan ordinaries uh, to proceed with this in direct defiance of what Pope Francis has asked them to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's uh, move on to another topic that does deal uh, directly with Pope Francis, and that is the meeting between Javier yes. Malay, uh new president of Argentina, and Pope Francis, both born in Buenos Aires. They have well... Uh, well-polished and radically different economic viewpoints. and <laughs> They do. I think that would be something of an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was thought that, uh, well, we know that Malayas use really some pretty trashy language to describe Pope Francis. I think nefarious, imbecile, and other invectives. <laughs> uh, yes, he did. <laughs> Now, in fairness to Malay, uh, in the campaign that led to his uh, landslide election, shocking uh, development uh, to those who apparently follow politics in South America, and certainly those uh, in Western Europe and North America who did not see this coming, he did temper some of his comments, especially toward the end of the campaign. Uh And then immediately after uh, his election, as is usually the case, uh, reached out almost immediately to Pope Francis, uh, offered this invitation that Pope Francis could come to Argentina. It was uh, providential, very fortuitous, that uh, Pope Francis was already planning to canonize uh, the first Argentine female saint. Oh. And it is in Rome, and that's Blessed Maria Antonia of St. Joseph, who is uh, known as Mama Antua, a fascinating figure in her own right. We can talk about her in a second. Mm-hmm. But it gave Malay the perfect opportunity to go to Rome to meet with Pope Francis. And you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, it was uh, there, were, there were certain expectations, given Malay is a very flamboyant figure. And given his previous comments, uh, no one was really sure what would happen. Although I think in this case, Realpolitik won out. As the president of Argentina going to visit an Argentine pope, uh, it would have been, I think, really shocking and a horrendous breach of protocol for him to have uh, done anything other than what he did. Now, having said that, uh, it seemed to me that he went out of his way to be as gracious as possible. And two of them uh, at the canonization had a very warm embrace, uh, and it it was quite striking to see. And then when they met the next day, uh, this would be on February 12th, uh, the the private meeting between them was exceptionally long, even by Pope Francis's. Hmm. He generally does not have these long meetings. But it's also the longest meeting he's ever had. 
with any of the heads of state of Argentina, going back to the Kirchners. Wow. Uh, so that tells us something, too. Yeah. All right, hold it there, uh, Matthew. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and talk about... I want to hear about this new Argentine saint. And uh, we've also got other stories. The Notre Dame Cathedral Spire is uh, to be unveiled. It's been five years since the devastating fire. And Israel's complaining about Vatican statements. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Our topic, stories of Catholic interest around the world. And there are a number of interesting pictures of uh, Pope Francis being given a just a bear hug by the new president of Argentina, Javier Millet, uh, shocking everybody, breaking protocol. They had met together uh, for the first time, in fact, in St. Peter's Basilica for the canonization of Argentina's first native saint, uh, Mama Antula. And um, this, this again, this was this hug was not expected. Uh, because it was well thought that there was hostility between the two men. Uh, Javier Millet is a free market champion who has accused Pope Francis of being essentially a socialist. Um, So it was interesting to see them get along as human beings. Uh, (laughs) It's a funny picture. (laughs) It is. Uh, We're not used to seeing people just in... Giving great now, Pope Francis gives hugs to a lot of people. Certainly, yeah. he's done this around the world. But yeah, I think he, you've made a really important distinction here. Millet was giving Pope Francis. Hugs. Yeah, yeah. This is a breaking of protocol, and and Millet looks kind of possessed uh, in some of these pictures with his hair looking like he just had his fingers in an electrical socket. Uh, but well, I, I like to think of him more as a, a kind of Byronic figure. Uh, he looks <laughs> like he, he might be more at home in Wuthering Heights. Yes, uh, okay. Right. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, but, yeah, so, but this is part of the image that he has. I mean, this is somebody who likes to fly commercial. Yeah. Uh, when he travels the world, uh, he is uh, very much a libertarian at, at heart. He is very much also a, a free market uh, capitalist. Uh, and we can talk more about that in a second. But all of it points to a very different outlook uh, from and some of the social questions uh, from Pope Francis. Right. Yeah. Uh, certainly on the economic side. But being president of Argentina uh, has brought them inextricably together. And uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see if Pope Francis is able to follow through. There have been discussions uh, that he might visit Argentina in the second half of the year. One of the logical times for him to do that would be in early September, mm-hmm. when he is expected at least, rumored at least, uh, to be planning to attend the International Eucharistic Congress that is going to be held in Quito, Ecuador. So it's, it's an easy flight for him to make. Uh, from Ecuador down to Argentina. Okay. It's, again, notable, though, that Pope Francis, uh, he's been Pope now, will be hitting his 11th anniversary shortly, has not made any return trip to his homeland, which is just was not expected uh, when he came in. Yeah. yeah. And 
should his visit be accomplished, uh, I think Malay will welcome him with open arms. And, and that, too, is going to be fun to watch just in terms of the body language. Yeah. But even when you see the, the photos of the two of them meeting in private audience uh, that the, the Vatican issued, these two are really engaged uh, in conversation. Uh, in, in a way, as I was saying, that you did not see very often with um, Pope Francis' relationship with the Kirchners, uh, who ran Argentina for quite a number of years, including when he was the Archbishop in Buenos Aires. Mm. Well, talk to me about this um, Mama Antula. Yeah. Well, she is... Uh, uh, I was, I've been surprised, let me put it this way, that uh, somehow she had not been canonized already because she has several things that are of great interest to Pope Francis. The first is uh, that uh, she's obviously from Argentina, uh, an extraordinary uh, woman uh, who is formerly known as Maria Antonia of St. Joseph, but everyone in her who knew her, she was simply Mama Antula. So she was born in 1730, died in 1799, a consecrated laywoman. But she was also a great promoter of Ignatian spirituality. So here we have two things that Pope Francis uh, is especially uh, not- notable in terms of his support. The first yeah. is an Argentine saint, uh, as, as I was saying, that the first female saint. But then the other is her direct connection with the Jesuits. Uh, at a time in Argentina and around the world when the Jesuits were facing uh, oppression and then outright suppression. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for her, uh, she was drawn to Ignatian spirituality from a very early time in her life and wanted to serve God. And then the Jesuits were expelled from the entire Spanish Empire by King Charles III or Carlos III. And she then took it upon herself uh, to roam around much of northern Argentina by foot uh, to promote and try to perpetuate Ignatian spirituality. Uh, in the face of what was a really hostile environment uh, in the wake of the suppression of the Jesuits. Mm. And uh, so was her primary role then as a a spiritual director or teacher? Yeah, uh, I think that the best way to describe it is that she was consecrated and gave her treats and then uh, was somebody who tried to establish houses for spiritual exercise, okay. uh, the exercises. And that, again, in that, in that era, tells you something, uh, because there was this great hostility culminating, of course, with the outright suppression of the Jesuits, uh, I think in 1773. And uh, that lasted until the time of Pope Pius VII uh, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century. So for her then to be this great figure, um, Pope Francis said of, of her that uh, thanks to her, he called her the saint, an intercessor of divine providence. She made uh, this way into homes, neighborhoods, transportation, stores, factories, and hearts to offer a life of dignity through work, justice, and daily bread. Uh, and he was especially... Uh, pointing out to her her devotion to St. Cajetan, or Gaetano of Tiene, uh, who's also now one of the most popular saints in Argentina. Okay. So she promoted him, she promoted Ignatian spirituality. So it, it, it's just a remarkable story, and uh, Pope Francis really wanted to make a point of making sure that everyone was aware of her. Yeah. 
Uh, and I, I find it striking that uh, we we're, we have to be very careful in how we define miracles and things. But the the joy, uh, the ebullience of the embrace and everything between Malay and Pope Francis, given everything that had preceded it, uh, certainly the atmosphere of her canonization was a great opportunity for the two of them. Yes, yes. I love that, too. I love that the canonization was the backdrop uh, for their meeting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we and know? Let's not, we can't. We can't downplay though the, the serious differences between the two. Of them. Right. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. No. I, do we know very much about the healing uh, that uh, took place in 2010? The the nun Rosa Venina. Uh, what What did we learn about that? Yeah. Just the, the, the typical uh, approval of a miracle uh, that led to her uh, canonization. Again, Pope Francis had the option, as he often does, uh, to waive that uh, miracle. Okay. Uh, so in that sense, uh, he chose to stay with this. Uh, and I think this is uh, something that he wanted to have play out, as he frequently does. Uh, let me switch gears to France. Uh, where I noticed this week that um, they're talking about unveiling the uh, the spire, the rebuilt spire of uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. And uh, this has been a a long project, five years um, after the fire. Uh, That's right. I, I was surprised because of France's policy of separ- what we would call separation of church and state, or their policy, which is more, even more r- rigorous than ours, of laicity. Yeah, laicite is yeah. The, uh, the technical, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised yeah, right. at how the people of France rallied behind the rebuilding of Notre Dame Cathedral, the spire there. So it's the, I, what exactly is the relationship between... Notre Dame Cathedral, the Catholic Church, and French, uh, French social policy. Well, you're absolutely right. And this is a case uh, in which, uh, in the face of laïcité, in other words, the, the domination of the church, essentially the, the state owns prop- the property of the church. Nevertheless, this has been, I would argue personally, a significant triumph uh, for those who really understand the importance of Notre Dame, but also who are resisting uh, even Emmanuel Macron, the, the, the head of France's uh, initial inclinations uh, to update uh, the rebuilding of Notre Dame so that it uh, is more in keeping with the times. Uh, and instead, uh, because of the, the sheer scale of international outcry, but especially the outcry within France, the French parliament itself in, actually went so far as to enact a law that required or mandated uh, that the reconstruction of Notre Dame preserve, and there's a quote here, the historic, artistic, and ar- architectural interest of the original structure. In other words, these plans that had surfaced or were leaked of things like huge pools on the top of the roof and uh, various forests and uh, trying to mandate uh, certain interfaith sections for Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. All of that uh, was dismissed. And 
to their great credit, the Friends of Notre Dame de Paris, uh, it's a nonprofit that was uh, key to the renovation and was also instrumental also uh, in, in terms of the cathedral fund that raised 800 million euros from 300,000 separate donors around the world. They were really in the driving seat here, the driver's seat of this restoration. And it was a, a check, a real checkmate, I think, for those, uh, even in the French government, who initially thought this would be an opportunity for them to meddle or to uh, have things reflect uh, the, the current of the time. No, that the French people themselves were very clear. We are going to rebuild Notre Dame as close as we can uh, to what it was. Yeah. And the spire, uh, which ironically is not part of the original structure when it was built. Uh, this is Actually, the spire was uh, added in the 19th century. But it gives you an idea of how fierce uh, the resistance was that even the discussion of changing the spire uh, ran into a lot of controversy and they ended up essentially rebuilding it and, and recreating it as it was. Hmm. Well, that's marvelous. Uh, Matthew Holder will come back. I want to talk about the veneration of relics of the 21 Coptic martyrs of Libya. Uh, also, Israel's complaint about the Vatican denouncing carnage and the disproportionate response in Gaza, and a number of other stories. I'm Al Creston. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Let me uh, encourage you to tune in to Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Saturdays, 5 in the morning and 9.30 in the evening, Eastern Time, on EWTN Radio. Uh, Joan uh, speaks directly from the Eternal City. She hosts uh, interviews with Vatican officials and visitors about events affecting the Church and the world. Again, that's Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis, Saturdays, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. With me is Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We're looking at stories around the world, and one that really gripped my attention was uh, the Coptic Orthodox Church has declared the 21 Coptic Christian martyrs, um, they are saints. Uh, They jumped on this back in 2015, and now we have the relics of of the 21 Coptic martyrs killed by ISIS in Libya, they're being venerated in St. Peter's Basilica, and uh, there'll be an ecumenical, ecumenical prayer service there, and that will mark their first official feast day in the Catholic Church. Now, people have pointed out that this is some unusual um, because Pope Francis has added the Coptic martyrs to the Roman martyrology. Uh, this is the official list of saints. Matthew, what can you tell us about this cooperation between the Coptic Orthodox Church, and the Holy See. Yeah, I'm so glad that we can talk about this here on their feast day, because you're absolutely right. The, uh, there was uh, scheduled uh, to have an in St. Peter's tonight, an evening vespers that commemorated uh, the anniversary of their martyrdom. For those who may remember, they were beheaded by the ISIS uh, on a beach in Libya. They, they were workers who had from mostly from Egypt, who had been looking uh, to find employment there. And their martyrdoms, I don't recommend anyone watch this, but their martyrdoms right. were recorded by ISIS, posted all over the Internet. And 
subsequently, within a week, I believe, the, the Catholic Orthodox Church uh, first confirmed the authenticity of the video and then declared them martyrs. And I, the speed of that was really quite striking. And then immediately dedicated a church in their honor uh, in a village in Egypt uh, that was home to, what, I think, most of them, about the 13 or 14 of them. Yeah. Go to just last year, uh, Pope Francis, uh, as part of the ongoing ecumenical relations with the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt, which is the largest of the, the Christian denominations in Egypt, announced that uh, he would be henceforth including them uh, in the Roman Martyrology. Now, for those who may not be that familiar with it, it is the official list of the saints and blessed, including the martyrs, who are recognized in the liturgy of the Church, of the Catholic Church. And it, it's one of the hallmark, the keys to this, is the, the calendar of feast days. Mm-hmm. So not only did he recognize them uh, as martyrs, which undisputably, unquestionably they were, but he included them then in the Roman martyrology, which means they also have a feast day, and as a further gesture, celebrated their feast day on February 15th, uh, which is also the feast day for, that is celebrated by the Coptic Orthodox Church. So what Pope Francis often uses this phrase, and I know that a lot of theologians and things debated a little bit is this ecumenism of blood yeah uh, that the, the blood of those who are dying for Christ uh, around the world and it is happening every day is a key to bringing us all together in what have long been divided Christian denominations and this is an occasion I think of great significance uh, first, that they were included last year, but now here we have the commemoration of the ninth anniversary of their martyrdom in St. Peter's Basilica with a, a relic of them, uh, of these beautiful martyrs that were given to Pope Francis uh, by the head of the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria, Tawadros II. Yeah, I, this story gripped me at the time, and uh, we also spoke with the... Uh, uh, the journalist who did the major story on, in fact, published a book, and uh, apparently these these men knew that they were targeted for their faith, and while none of them were, uh, you know, very well formed theologically, so to speak, uh, they all uh, were faithful to the end, and. Uh, the story is told by Martin Mosebach in his book, The 21, A Journey into the Land of Coptic Martyrs. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. I've not seen the documentary. Oh, that's right. And, and uh, there is a, a documentary that was going to be airing uh, on the martyrs uh, in Rome, uh, sort of in coordination uh, with this event, with the Vespers. Yeah. So it's called the 21, the power of faith. Right. Uh, they're actually produced by the Coptic Orthodox Church. But you, you've, you've said something, too, that it, it's, it's worth revisiting, and that is that you have these 21 men, again, mostly from Egypt. As I recall, there was one, someone from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa who were taken by ISIS, and they were given the choice of converting or dying. And that is the, what has always been forced upon those who were captured, especially by terrorist organizations like ISIS. All of them chose to die on a beach 
yeah. uh, under the most horrible, violent circumstances. And we know from the videos that were posted uh, quite intentionally by ISIS, but with the unintended consequences of the posting. What I mean by that is that here in these videos, what was supposed to be a celebration of the, the horror of ISIS, instead it showed the steadfast faith of these martyrs mm-hmm. who gave as with their last breath with the last words in their mouths proclaiming the name Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is uh Christianity for 2000 years has been marked by the beautiful testament, the testimony. Uh, the the word martyr means witness. Yeah. Is it this witness to faith and we will now remember these 21 martyrs forever. Yeah. Uh ISIS as we saw in Iraq, as we saw in Syria, there are elements of it, certainly we can't underestimate radical jihad, radical Islam. But these are martyrs who are now going to be remembered for another 2,000 years. Yeah. And in much the same way that we honor the, the Roman martyrs and we honor the martyrs throughout history, we can now honor them. And I think that that is worth noting, but it's also worth celebrating. Yes, yes. Let me uh, stay in the, in the Middle East, uh, but yeah. with this complaint of Israel, um, apparently the Israeli embassy to the Holy See uh, had, well, saw the comments made by Cardinal uh, Perelin, the Vatican Secretary of State. Uh, his comments were regrettable. Uh, he spoke about carnage in Gaza and what he termed a disproportionate Israeli military operation following the October 7th Hamas attacks. And, uh, you know, this is is not an uncommon complaint, and Israel is having to um, push back uh, about to many uh, critics that are saying that your right to self-defense is not has to be exercised proportionately, and when you're killing 30,000 civilians, that's not proportionate. So, yeah. What, uh, is there anything, is there much more to this story? Well, there is. Um, this has been uh, really since uh, the attack on Israel by Hamas uh, back on October 7th. Yeah. Uh, we have seen quite uh, several back and forth uh, moments. Uh, involving even Pope Francis. Uh, we talked a couple of, uh, I think last week, uh, that Pope Francis met uh, with Palestinian and Israeli families, and there was this whole back and forth about did he actually use the word genocide? Uh, did he call it terrorism in terms of Israel's response? And the Vatican said, no, he did not actually say that here, that the Palestinians who took part in this said they, they swore he said that. That's indicative of just how high the tensions are. Yeah, yeah. So Cardinal Paroline, who is the Vatican Secretary of State, who is the highest-ranking uh, diplomat, certainly, in the Holy See, uh, who is very precise and very careful uh, with his words, uh, was clear in expressing concerns uh, about Israel's response. And he used the phrase proportionate. And that is certainly something that within the Catholic tradition, the Catholic uh, teaching, the Catholic social teaching, 
the just war principle calls for a proportionate response. And looked at that way, one can understand the point he was trying to make, that he is concerned about the number of civilian casualties and that there has to be a way, he put it, to solve the problem of Gaza, the problem of Palestine. He added that there, he issued a clear and unreserved condemnation of what happened on October 7th, as well as a very clear condemnation of every type of anti-Semitism. But this is a very sensitive subject to the Israelis, given what they feel were some of the comments by Pope Francis, who also issued a letter just last week uh, to Jews around the world, calling them brothers and and really condemning anti-Semitism. The Israelis uh, used very sharp language uh, in their complaint. And subsequently, uh, the very next day, they used the word deplorable in the original uh, posting. They changed that uh, just uh, today in a statement saying they should should have used the word regrettable. Now, for those who followed the diplomatic lingo, uh, it's important to, to note that the use of the word regrettable is one step down. I mean, this is a, a real, in, in some ways, it's trying to calm the situation. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> that the word regrettable was in the original English, but was translated into the Italian as deplorable, uh, which is essentially deplorable. <laughs> uh, but they, they were saying what they should have said should have been sfortunata, which is something like unfortunate. Um, <laughs> and the fact that here we are looking at the translation from English to Italian, a very specific word tells you how seriously uh, this situation is that we're facing, but also how they recognize uh, that they have to walk a very fine line, especially dealing with the Holy See. But it, it's an interesting gesture on the part of the Israelis. Uh, when I get this story in here, because I don't know what to make of it, apparently there was a rave that took place in Canterbury Cathedral, and I'm just wondering why. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this within is within the Anglican tradition. This is sacred ground. Well, yes, even within the Anglican tradition. <laughs> yeah, you're right. This is this is this is the cathedral that goes all the way back to Augustine of Canterbury. This is the cathedral where Thomas Becket was martyred. Yes, uh, that was counted. Countless pilgrims have been there over the centuries, uh, and of course, we have the great. Jeffrey Chaucer, author of what? The Canterbury Tales. Yep. And yet, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, we had a rave. Uh, I would encourage everyone to go to ncregister.com to read Edward Penton's blog post on this. Yeah. Uh, because he was actually raised in Canterbury. Why did they do this? They need the money. It's a statement of the dire situation facing the Church of England today. Wow. Strobe lights, three and disc jockeys. Uh, music and bobbing party goers through wireless neon lit headphones. Uh, definitely go read this article. They made about 75,000 pounds. All right. Matthew, thank you so much. Privilege to be with you.